God, I thank you so much for your word. I do thank you it's trustworthy and true. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come and fill me now that I can proclaim your word into the heavenly places and to your people. Uh, Lord, we've had enough of shame and we want to see uh, any demons manifesting or reinforcing shame to fall. And we want to live in freedom. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd enable me by the power of your Spirit just to proclaim your word and in the proclamation of that word that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our lives to the glory and honor of Jesus. We do love you and we worship you and we praise you and we adore you. And we do all that in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, 2 Samuel 6, we're going to start with verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peats offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Then to Matthew, the 27th chapter, we begin with verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus. No, I'm going to go start in verse 26. Uh, this is after Pilate's releasing Barabbas. Then Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! 
And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Oh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days will save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, Oh, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. <laughs> Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Well, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And then to Hebrews Chapter 12, first three verses. <clears throat> Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. One of the great discussions I find uh, amongst Christians and amongst people is hell. You know, what is the nature of hell? And, and a lot of people say, well, you know, hell is an eternal fire, and they get that obviously from the scriptures. Uh, some people, when they talk about hell, they look at Dante's Inferno, and they see different layers and levels of hell. And it's interesting, in Dante's Inferno, when you get all the way down uh, to, to Satan, He's encapsulated in, 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 in freezing, in ice, because he's so cold-hearted and there's no life in him. And so it's a very, very interesting dynamic. Uh, and, and so we can talk about hell, and there's lots of metaphors about hell, but if you really want to know about hell, one of the things that the Scripture testifies to exceedingly clearly is that hell will be a place of everlasting shame. One of the characteristics of hell is that there will be shame and the people who are in hell will experience shame in an everlasting way. Shame is that, that painful emotion that we have when, 
when we sin, when we've been exposed, that there might be something wrong with us, something damaged about us, that we might be incomplete or inadequate in and of ourselves, or if we begin to feel that way. And it's globally, it is the most commonly experienced painful emotion. And globally, everybody is trying to avoid shame. Everybody is trying to get away from shame. Uh, But we need to understand that the whole issue of hell is that of everlasting shame. People who want to avoid shame now, if they don't come to Jesus Christ, they will experience shame in an everlasting way. And I can't even imagine what that is like, that kind of shame. And when we look around, as we've said, we look around at all these authors and and the counselors and psychologists, all trying to give us an antidote for shame, but ultimately, the only antidote for shame is Jesus. The only way that we can be free from shame, the only way that we can be healed of shame, the only way that we can overcome shame is through Jesus Christ as we've been looking in these last few weeks. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the answer. And for those who come to Jesus, they will be set free from shame. But for those who refuse Jesus, they will expose themselves to everlasting shame. And it will be them that does it. It will be they who refuse Jesus that expose themselves to everlasting shame. And that's why we need to proclaim this good news about Jesus Christ and about who he is. But as we've been talking about shame, uh, we've depicted it as entirely a a negative kind of thing. But to understand shame fully, we need also to understand that, yes, shame was not a part of God's good creation. It was not what God wanted us to experience. God's intention was not for us to sin, But shame came into the world as soon as we chose to sin and that brought that brokenness and that incompleteness into us. It made us conscious of our incompleteness without one another and without God. It made us conscious of our our sinful, the the fact that we've displeased God. Shame entered the world, but shame also has, according to the Bible, a redemptive purpose. And so to begin to understand shame, we have to understand the redemptive purposes of shame. And shame has a redemptive purpose for people who are not Christians and for people who are Christians. There's a redemptive purpose of shame for those who are not believers and for those who are are believers. And we need to understand those. And there's two redemptive purposes for people who are not believers, and there are two redemptive purposes of shame for people who are Christians. Now by redemptive purpose, I mean that God takes the shame and uses it even though it's not his intention for this to be in the world, even though we brought this on ourselves through collusion with Satan, we brought this sin into the world, God still takes it and uses it for his purposes and for his glory. So how does he do that? Well, the first redemptive purpose of shame for people who are not Christians 
Shame compels people to seek God. Shame compels people to seek God or to completely throw off God and reject Him entirely. I love what David says here in the Psalms, Psalm 83, 16. Fill their faces with shame. This is his prayer. Fill their faces with shame so that they may seek your name, O Lord. Do you know, we can pray that prayer. We can pray that prayer for people who don't know Jesus. Lord, just fill their faces with shame. What does that mean? It means don't let them get away from it. Don't let them avoid it until they come to seek your face to be free from it. That's what that means. The second redemptive purpose of shame for people who are not Christians is that shame alerts people that they need a Savior who can free them from shame and restore them to God so they can live without shame. Shame should alert everybody that we can't get out of it ourselves, we can't break it ourselves, we can't get free from it ourselves, and so we need somebody to help us get free. Who can do that? It's not Buddha, it's not Muhammad, it's not the Quran, it's not Krishna, it's only Jesus. And so we want people in the world to experience shame so they will come to Jesus. Because if people don't experience shame, they won't come to Jesus. And as we saw last week, when people get into a place of shamelessness, that's the time when you know that they are lost eternally. Somebody who will not experience shame and somebody who pushes the shame out and says, no, I'm going to live the way I want to live, even though somewhere inside of me I know this is shameful, I'm going to live this, this way shamelessly contrary to the will of God. That's when you know that they have become what the Bible calls sons of disobedience, and they're going to be lost. So we want people to experience, non-Christians, to experience shame because shame will alert them that they need Jesus. It will draw them to Jesus. And so our call is not to make people feel ashamed so that they will come to Jesus, by the way. Do you know that? It's God who will do this. Our call is to live righteously before people. Our call is to tell people about the good news of Jesus because what happens is when people are exposed to the good news, when they see shamelessness, righteous shamelessness in us, it will expose the shame that is operating in their lives and will draw them to us to say, how is it that you live in the freedom that you have? And we say, well, it's nice that you asked. It's because of Jesus. And the big problem that many Christians have gotten into around the world is they start thinking it's our job to make people feel ashamed. People don't need us to make them feel ashamed. Shame is there, as every psychologist will tell you, shame is there operating in the world. They don't need us to make them ashamed. So that's the second redemptive purpose for non-Christians. But what about for Christians? Now it kind of, sounds kind of strange. You know, what is the redemptive purpose of shame for us? Well, again, there are two. The first redemptive purpose for shame is that when we experience shame, when we feel shame, it should provoke a righteous response in us in opposition 
to the disintegration, damage, and disgrace caused by shame. So when you feel shame, what should happen is something should rise up inside of you where you say, I am not going to stand for this. I am not going to allow Satan to make me feel ashamed. I'm not going to allow people to make me feel ashamed. I am not going to use shame as a weapon. I am going to resist shame in the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it doesn't provoke a righteous response in us, then there's something off. We don't have our eyes rightly fixed on Jesus. What does that mean? That means if I'm sinning, and I start to feel shame because of my sin. You know what that should do? It should trigger in me, I'm going to stop sinning. I, I, I am not a sin-filled person. I am righteous. I'm a son of God before Jesus, and I need to stop this shameful thing that I'm doing. And it motivates us toward repentance and righteous living. The second thing that shame should do, shame should rouse us to shameless worship of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we are feeling shame, when people are trying to make us ashamed, we should, it should drive us to worship God ever more shamelessly, just like David did. But in order for those, the shame to accomplish its redemptive purposes, we need to understand how Jesus bore our shame in the cross and through the cross restored us to God. Without this, shame has no redemptive purpose. Unless we know Jesus, unless we know what he did, what he experienced, and, and how he has set us free from shame, there is no way that we can see a redemptive purpose in shame in our lives. And that's why this passage from Matthew is so powerful. And I, I didn't focus on the whole crucifixion. I wanted to focus on this passage because this passage is all about shame. Jesus experienced maximum shame in the crucifixion. Jesus experienced maximum shame in the crucifixion. There are more than 15 different ways that Jesus was shamed in that, that short period of time. Now remember, Jesus is a sinless son of God. Jesus at this point in time has lived his life 100% shame-free. Jesus never felt shame. Jesus never experienced shame because Jesus never sinned. Jesus never felt shame. Jesus never experienced shame because from the beginning he knew that he was only complete in relationship with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had lived a shame-free, sin-free life for us, but then suddenly... On that day he was crucified, he was thrown right into the midst of shame for all of us. Check this out. First of all, they shamed him by scourging him as a criminal. They had a cat of nine tails. The cat of nine tails has little bits of rock and bone in the, in the tips. So when they, when they strike you on the back with it, it pulls out a little bit of flesh every time. And they exposed him, and they publicly scourged him as a criminal. Then they stripped Jesus naked in front of 600 laughing men. You know, when I was in school, I absolutely hated sports. 
because I didn't want to have to go into a locker room and get naked in front of a, a, a group of my peers who had a real tendency to laugh at you, to make fun of you in your intimate bits. And here's Jesus, the Son of God, fully exposed before 600 Roman soldiers, completely naked. They take off all of his clothes. And you know, Roman soldiers, they like to have a good time. They were not the nicest of people. Then they mocked, these soldiers mocked him and demeaned his identity and calling. They dressed him up to humiliate him. They put this crown of thorns on his head and they laughed at him. They said, oh yeah, look at this king, boy. He's such a great king. And they taunted him. And then they stripped him again. And then they spit on him. You know, spitting on people is a universal sign of contempt and shame. That's around the world. Nobody, you know, there's no culture in the world that says, yeah, we're a spitting culture. We, we show love to each other by, hey, baby. It's shameful. And so 600 men, I don't think everybody, every one of them did it, but a couple of dozen probably came up to him and spit on him. They spit on him. Then they took him out to carry the cross and they further shamed him by recruiting somebody else to carry his cross. We look at that and we say, well, Jesus was so weak and he was. But having somebody else carry your cross was a public humiliation saying, well, this guy, this crook is not even man enough to carry his own cross. They shamed him in the carrying of his cross. Publicly humiliating Jesus. Then they crucified him. Not to crucify, they take your clothes off. You know, we have all these, these nice sanitized versions of the, of the crucifixion in a lot of churches where Jesus has this little loincloth on. You know, they didn't crucify people that way. They took all of their clothes off. And they took all of his clothes off and then they nailed him to a cross and they hung him up like on Holborn Viaduct. It wasn't in somebody's back garden. It was in the busy public thoroughfare so that everybody that came by could take a glimpse, could have a look-see. And then they gave him this wine mixed with gall. You know, that wasn't a kind thing. That was mocking him. That was saying, oh, well, you know, kings, they should have wine here. But then they put this bitter stuff in it so that it was undrinkable. And that's why he didn't drink that. The wine mixed with myrrh was an anesthetic, which they tried to give him a little bit later. So you have the wine mixed with gall. They stripped him naked for all to see, crucified him as a criminal. Then while he's still alive, they take his clothes and they cast lots to get his clothes. Then they mocked him again by putting the charge, this is Jesus, king of the Jews, over his head. We know it was true. But it wasn't intended to be true. It was tended, intended to humiliate him. They crucified him then between two thieves, between two common criminals, not at the end so he could stand apart, but right in the middle to say Jesus is no different than a thief. Jesus is no different than any lowlife that you might see, a drunk or anything else. Then the people who passed by him derided him 
and they wagged their heads, oh, and they taunted him. And then the religious leaders mocked him and taunt him. The, the real important people of the day, the people that everybody would respect, they were reviling him and they were taunting him. They mocked his fundamental identity as the Son of God and mocked whether or not God really loved him. They're just like, oh, well, you know, Jesus, God doesn't really love you. He can't possibly love you because you're being crucified like a criminal. If he really loved you, he'd take you down off the cross. Can you see how shaming and humiliating that is? And not only did the people who passed by mock him and the religious leaders mock him, but also the thieves mocked him. The thieves reviled him. Yes, we know that later one repented before he died. But at the beginning, they were mocking him. And Jesus experienced the fullness of shame for all humanity. And the shame, it's not just the shame of one person. When Jesus was there on the cross, he experienced all of our shame in that moment. And that's why he had to be God because only God could have borne our shame as Jesus bore our shame on that cross. And so it's no wonder that those who refuse Jesus will experience everlasting shame. Because Jesus has said, I'll take it for you, and those who turn away from Him, those who don't surrender to Him, those who don't become Christians, are spitting in His face all over again. They're shaming Jesus all over again. Jesus in that cross, He experienced our shame. And not only did Jesus experience our shame in the cross, do you know what He did? He embraced our shame. Jesus willingly took our shame. It's as if we were standing naked and ashamed. And Jesus said, no, son, here's, here's my coat. I'm covering you up with my righteousness so you will never have to experience shame again. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's why shame can have a redemptive purpose both for non-Christians and for Christians, for unbelievers and for believers. So how do we embrace the redemptive purpose of shame and live our lives when we experience shame? What does this mean for us? How do we live? How do we respond? How do we act? Well, David and the writer to the Hebrews both give us guidance in this way. This passage from Hebrews 12, it's absolutely one of my favorite passages. Uh, that means those of you who preach at City Temple probably should never preach on that passage. It's kind of dangerous. But it's absolutely one of my favorite passages. And how we respond to shame is right there. God's guidance to us for our response so that shame becomes redemptive is right there in this passage. And we can summarize that the central message is this. Nakedly run your own race with endurance. That's it. Nakedly run your own race with endurance. In the ancient world, when they did a foot race, and that's the language, it's the language of a foot race like the Olympics, 
when they did a foot race, it's not like today where they have on uh, like a little t-shirt and, and some trousers. You stripped naked to run your race. That meant if you were an athlete, you were 100% exposed before the entire spectators, group of spectators. 100% exposed. Do you know, as Christians, we are 100% exposed. There's no hiding because Jesus knows everything. There's no covering ourselves because only Jesus can cover us. So we need to understand that when we're running the race, even though we'll have clothes on in the natural, we're naked in the spiritual. Now, don't start looking at people around you and envisioning that, right? That's not the righteous way to do this. We nakedly do what? You run your own race. He says, run the race that is set before you. I'm not to run the race that is set before Olashina. I can't run the race that's set before Marcos. I can't run the race that's set before Joshua. All I can do is run the race that is set before me. And when you start feeling shame, one of the key things is saying, am I running my race? Because a lot of times we feel shame because we're trying to run somebody else's race. And you can't do that. So you run the race that is set before you and you need to do it with endurance. This is a race not of speed, but of stamina. It means that you set out and you say, no matter what I experience, no matter what there is, I am not going to quit. I'm not going to back down. I am going to go with all the strength that God provides until my race is done. That's the key message. But the question is, how do we do this? How do we do this? And the passage tells us. The passage says that we do this with the faith and the faithfulness of those who have gone before. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. You cannot run your race with endurance without faith and without faithfulness. And your example of faith and faithfulness are all of the Christians that have gone before us. So we have to have that faith in Jesus and keep on going. We run our race by laying aside anything that impedes us. We lay aside our impediments. Now it's interesting, the writer doesn't specify what those are, and the reason is because it's different for all of us. I've known some people, their impediment was their car. I've known some people, the impediment was their job, or the impediment was their value on money, or the impediment was their television set, or their impediment was their, their phone. That's the, the key with a lot of people right now. Whatever it is, God will show you what is slowing you down. God will show you what is impeding you. Because if you want to run a race, you can't pick up your car and your TV set and your house and try to run that race. You have to be willing to lay everything down for the purpose of running the race. So you lay aside all of your impediments and you lay aside the sin that clings closely. Now this issue... Again, like the impediments, do you know, we all don't commit the same sins. We all don't even have the same sin tendencies. I know some people whose sin tendency is to lie. I know some people whose sin tendency is to uh, exaggerate a bit. For some, their sin tendency is pride. For others, their sin tendency is, is lust. 
For others, their sin tendency might be gluttony in some way. But we all have different sin tendencies. And what we like to do is look at the sin tendencies of other people and say, well, that's not mine. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I'm okay. But what God wants you to do is look at your own sin tendencies because it's the sin that clings closely, that sin that you're trying to hold on to and hide somewhere, but you're naked so you can't hide it, but you're trying to hold on to it, you're trying to hide it somewhere, that's the one you lay down. I'm not saying you commit the other sins, by the way. So it's not a license. But you lay aside that clingy sin, you lay aside your impediments in order to run the race, and you focus fully on Jesus and following Him. Your focus has to be on Jesus. So you're running the race, your focus has to be on the goal line. I've seen Usain Bolt run just once. It was so fast, I blinked and I almost missed it. Uh, but I saw him run, and it was interesting. When he was running the race, even though there's all these spectators, he wasn't going, hi, everybody. Hi, I'm running the race. I'm running the race. He wasn't even looking at his competitors, the people in the aisles next to him. That man, he focused on the goal line, and he says, I'm going for it, and I'm going that direction, and nothing's going to stop me, and I'm going to get there. And that's what we got to do with Jesus. we got to focus on Jesus and say, I'm going in that direction, and there's nothing that's going to stop me, nothing that's going to prevent me from getting there, because that's the way that I'm going. I'm fixed on Jesus, and I'm following Him because Jesus is the champion of my faith and the perfect expression of what it means to run my race. So that's why I'm focusing on Him, because Jesus has done it. He's done it well. He's done it right. And if I focus on Him and I run the way He runs, I know I'm going to get there. I know I'm going to get the prize. And that's what He's saying here. And then you focus on the joy of finishing the race. There's a joy, there's a reward for us finishing the race. There's a joy that we experience even when we complete a lap of our race. I know there's times I go through really, really tough times and I want to quit, I want to give up, but I don't quit, I don't give up, for some reason I can't quit, I can't give up, and when I, when I do another lap, I think, okay, maybe I can make this, maybe I can run this race, and there's joy even for a partial completion, and just imagine what the joy is going to be when you fully complete the race. So you got to focus on the joy so that you can endure the suffering because it's painful. It's not easy to run this race, we all know. And here's key, as we're doing this, we must despise, scorn, hate, push aside the shame that we're experiencing just like Jesus did. When you feel that shame rising up in you, and you're going to, you sin, shame is going to rise up. You make a mistake, shame is going to rise up. You're laughed at by one of your coworkers. shame is going to rise up. Whenever that shame rises up, that's a sign, that's a trigger. I'm going to respond by running the race. I'm going to respond by focusing on Jesus. I'm going to hate that shame and scorn that shame and say, I don't care that there's shame because it's not going to stop me from running the race. You don't quit. You don't give up. It doesn't even matter that there's shame. The shame can't hold on to you because Jesus has cleansed you. So just despise the shame. Scorn it. If you care about it, it controls you. If you stop caring about it, nothing can control you except Jesus. 
and his love. And you remember the hostility of shaming that Jesus went through. And remember that no matter what shame you experience, it will never be as great. It will never be as great as what Jesus experienced. And you know that one day this is Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. We too are seated at the right hand of the Father. This is how we nakedly run our own race with endurance. And shame should provoke us. You feel shame, you start running. You feel shame, you start going. You feel shame, you start casting off those impediments, casting off those sins, focusing again on Jesus and say, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to get there. I'm going to cross the finish line and Jesus will be glorified and I'm going to get the crown of righteousness because I know that's where I'm going. And if you do that, shame cannot control you. Shame can't even hurt you. And then... We respond like David did, the second redemptive purpose, worship the Lord shamelessly. Man, if you know this message, how can you not worship God freely and fully with all your might? We're set free from shame, and it doesn't matter how foolish we look, how stupid we look, it doesn't matter what the world says about us, we're happy clappy, we're soupy loopy or whatever you want to call us, doesn't matter. Because we're free of shame in Jesus Christ. Even though others want to despise you and want to shame you, you worship the Lord shamelessly. You worship the Lord with freedom and selfless abandon just for the sake of honoring God. Not to get something from God, but simply because God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit deserves our worship. And that's the redemptive value of shame for us as believers in Jesus. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to do it now. No more waiting. No more delaying. No more saying, I'll put this off another day. You just go before the Lord and say, Jesus, I surrender to you. Cleanse me of all my shame. Cleanse me of all my sin. I believe that you bore my shame on the cross and I fully surrender my life to you now. Fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might live in a way that overcomes shame. That kind of prayer right now in your heart, do it. Don't delay. And friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's time for you to throw off your shame. It's time for you to realize shame does not have dominion over you. But through the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ has set you free. Embrace it, receive it fully through Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for loving us. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for communicating the life of Christ to us. Lord, enable us to be a church that worships you shamelessly. And Father, enable us to be a people who run the race that is set before us 
with endurance. Throwing aside our impediments, throwing aside the sin that clings so closely, fixing our eyes on Jesus, and like Jesus, despising shame, scorning it, casting it away. Determined not to live under its power any longer. We love you and we worship you. Now, Father God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would attend to us at this table. Great God, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, let us remember the shame that Jesus experienced for us and how Jesus embraced the shame on the cross so that by your grace, through faith in Jesus, we might experience a union with Jesus, a salvation where we live above shame, where we overcome shame and all of its disintegrating influences. As we eat the bread, as we drink from the cup today, remind us of these things. And let us experience your Holy Spirit washing us clean from shame as only you can do we love you and we praise you and we worship you we ask you now that you would bless this bread and this cup that they would be for us truly the body and blood of our Lord Jesus shed on the cross